9 a.m. Great to see you. Um, if we haven't met, I'm Mark. Uh, it's great to have you with us this morning. Well, old news is no news, isn't it? I mean, who cares what happened yesterday? Um, I have the news, sort of the nightly news on the TV, automatically set to record every night so that hopefully later on in the evening I get a chance to sit down and uh, watch it. But often I don't, and so I have to go back and delete yesterday's news or the day before. I never bother watching it. Who wants yesterday's news? It used to be that yesterday's newspaper got thrown out. Well, today, even today's newspaper tends to not be, even be bought, is it? Because the news is not up to date enough for us. The only news worth having is news from the right now that's on our phones, that's via our feeds, that's breaking across the bottom of our TV screens. We only need short memories because there's always something new to fill our minds with. New movies, new shows, new reels, new sport. Unless it's happening now, it's barely worth noticing. Now that makes Christians weird, doesn't it? I mean, we look back at history, at what God has done over time. Today we're looking at one night in Egypt three and a half thousand years ago. The Passover and the Exodus are not going to make it onto our news alerts. But let's be weird. Let's look back and, because I reckon looking back is going to help us navigate not only the now, but will be essential to navigating our future. But be prepared for this first taste of history is a taste of tears, the tears of the Egyptian people. Now, we have Egyptians here among us, and I imagine that there's a weightiness to a kind of a grief that they must feel for their people as they read this. Last week, we saw the first nine plagues on Egypt, that uh, God had sent against Pharaoh in the land. But this, the 10th, is by far the most devastating. I want us to use a little bit of imagination this morning. Put yourselves in the shoes of an Egyptian mother. All right, here it is. You grew up by the Nile River. You married there one warm summer's evening. You respect, in fact, you worship your pharaoh. You have a comfortable middle-class kind of a lifestyle because Egypt is a fertile land with political strength and stability. And pharaoh's rule has meant that you enjoy the luxury of slaves. Slaves working for you, Israelite slaves that have done the housework and the field work for as long as you can remember. And they've built great public projects for Pharaoh. So you can understand Pharaoh's reluctance to let those Israelites go out and worship their God in the wilderness. At first you are right behind him saying, no, no way. Though now you're not so sure. Because their God seems to be incredibly powerful. This God, Yahweh, they now call him, has turned the Nile to blood, sent frogs and insects. A whole lot of your livestock died suddenly. You yourself were covered in, in boils and then 
there was the hail. You've never seen stones that big and they smashed your crops. And then the locusts came and cleaned up the rest of your crops. There's going to be food shortage this year. And then there was darkness for three days. Somehow this Yahweh is more powerful than your God, Ra. Some of your Egyptian friends are planning to leave Egypt with the Israelites, worship this Yahweh themselves. These plagues, they were terrible. But nothing could prepare you for last night. You awoke to screams from your neighbours, but worse still from your own bed. Your own son screamed and then fell silent. The silence of death. Pharaoh, do something. You screamed at your husband to go and talk to the officials to beg Pharaoh to let Israel go. Forget your slaves. If they stay, you'll all be dead. Well, you laid by your son's body all night and wept until it seemed like there could be no tears left. You thought about praying to your gods, but, well, what's the point? Today you heard that even Pharaoh lost his firstborn son. Not a household was spared except the Israelite homes. And so Pharaoh had ordered them out of the land now. Your Israelite slaves had come to you in the dark, asking for silver and gold and clothing. You gave them what you could. You said goodbye and good riddance. They've gone now. You're alone in the house with your tears. Maybe in a few weeks, maybe down the track, you'll be less angry with this Yahweh and more angry with Pharaoh and perhaps with yourself for trusting him. Perhaps then you'll bow down and worship this Yahweh yourself. After all, he saw the tears of his people. And that's a lot more than you could say about your gods. Exodus 12, 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said up, leave my people. You and the Israelites go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. The Lord had made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Why would we want to remember that? Those tears. Millennia later. You know, tears are funny things. You know, when they blur our eyes, surprisingly, often we can see things more clearly. 
We can see what we really care about. We can see what really matters. Our Egyptian mother, just a moment ago, saw that her gods were useless, that her wealth was useless, that her middle-class lifestyle in Egypt was not heaven on earth as she thought it was. She finally even questioned the cultural religion that she grew up with. But perhaps that's been you in the past. Or even now. Often it's through tears of pain that we see the might, we see the power, the importance of God. When life goes pear-shaped, we can become spiritually open to the God who sees pain and punishment as a last resort, who hates the death of a sinner. To Jesus, who shed tears at Lazarus' funeral, who shed tears for Jerusalem, who has compassion for you. Once interviewed a friend of mine on this very platform. He went blind when he was a teenager, unable to see anything. And it threw him, understandably, into the deepest depression and bitterness until finally he gave his life to Jesus somehow in the midst of that pain. And he found hope, such that he would say, and when you hear it from his lips, it's not saying it lightly, but such that he would say that he is better blind, but truly able to see, rather than being truly blind. Now, his blindness, let me be clear, is not some Egyptian plague. It's not a punishment specifically on my friend or anything like that. No, absolutely not. But his story does illustrate the clarity that pain brings to our lives, that we can see what's most important. And whichever way you look at God's judgment, be it here in the Exodus or at the cross of Jesus, or as we look in the scriptures forward to the second coming of the Lord, it gives us clarity, doesn't it? What matters is avoiding that. What matters is to embrace the rescue that God is offering to us and holding out to us. This world will end in tears. And unless we understand that, we fail to see our need of rescue, our need of Jesus. Consider the words of 2 Peter chapter 3 to people questioning if the judgment is really coming. With the Lord... A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Let's be ready. Let's be ready. And let's make sure that those that we love are ready. In fact, let's make sure that our enemies are ready, that they too would not taste the saltiness of their own tears. Our God loves us and he wants us to taste his favour, to be safe under the blood of his son, which brings us to our second main idea, the taste of God's favour. 
The taste of the great Passover and Exodus, the central saving events of the Old Testament. For at midnight, when God went through the land of Egypt, striking down the firstborn sons, Israel was spared, favoured. The angel of death passed over them, passed completely over their homes. And then Pharaoh let them exit the land. We saw last week that the word Exodus just means exit. These events are so important to Israel that God had them reset their calendar in chapter 12, verse 2. Exodus was now the beginning of their new year. So let's picture the scene again. Imagine now that you're a young Israelite man in Egypt. Well, you're in your late teens. Already you've spent many years of cruel slave labour. One day after the ninth of the plagues God has sent on Egypt, your dad comes home from a meeting with the elders and for once has a smile on his face. He looks hopeful. Moses has given instructions for a special meal to be had that night. Something big is going to happen. And you help your dad kill a young lamb, the best one that you own. But the bizarre thing is you then paint some of the blood on the doorframe of your hut. And everyone goes inside. And your dad tells the whole family to put on your cloaks and your sandals as if you're going somewhere, but then he locks the door. And you settle down for the meal. The lamb is roasted over the fire and basted, would you believe, with bitter herbs. Bitter your father explains because of the bitter centuries of slavery that your people have endured 430 years in Egypt. And you have bread, bread without yeast. And you say your prayers, you sit down to eat, but that's just the start of an amazing night. Sometime in the early hours of the morning, there's a knock on your door. The message being passed around that Pharaoh has let your people go at last. And in the distance, though, you can hear wailing. Before long, you find out that every firstborn among men and cattle was slain at midnight. And your father explains that you were spared because of the blood on the doorframe. That God's destroyer passed right over your house because the lamb was killed instead of you as a substitute. And I tell you, you feel a wave of relief and joy because you are the firstborn in your family. Well, along with massive crowds, you make your way out and go to a place called Succoth. Your flocks and your herds are with you and some bare essentials. No time to bake bread, so you're carrying a batch of dough without the yeast. And the atmosphere among the people is just electric. Fear and excitement has your adrenaline pumping. Not that you yet know what an adrenaline system is. But more than anything, there is joy in Yahweh. God has finally heard your cries for help, 
things are looking up. Well, the Passover, the Exodus, salvation, freedom. God's taken the initiative, saved his people from slavery so many years ago, but it's just the beginning. It was just the beginning. Yahweh's saving initiative was not just for them. Years later, John the Baptist would greet Jesus with the words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 will say this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb. God's saving initiative in the Passover, the Exodus, foreshadows the Lord Jesus. Jesus, the spotless lamb, the one whose blood is there so that God will pass over us in judgment. The blood of a lamb or goat, think about it, will never actually remove sin or deflect God's anger. Ultimately, it was a symbol. It was a symbol of the real blood that does that. The Egyptians lost their sons, and of course the Israelites, a lamb, Jesus, both son and lamb, bled for the sins of the world. In faith, the Israelites were to paint the blood on their door frames. In faith, we are to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and, in a sense, like paint the blood on the door frame of our hearts, right? For Israel, these events were a sure sign that God had chosen them and loved them. They were weighty events. They were, it was a one-off. It wasn't to be repeated, but simply remembered. If an Israelite doubted God's love for them, they were to look back to the Exodus. This event was to be treasured in their hearts for generations and generations. I don't know about you, but have you had that moment where you've prayed to God for a a sign, a miracle, something to show you that he does love you, that he does care for you? Have you been there? I recall a time when I did, I pestered God, that I could somehow know for sure. And you know what? He gave me a sign. I just didn't see it until a lot later. The miracle was that at that time of my life, he was directing me to just look to the cross and the resurrection, that that was all I needed. God changed me, not to demand a new song, but a new sign, but to remember what he had already done for me, to lift my eyes from the now and to look back with gratitude for the then. Well, you know, we love today's news, but Christians, we never forget what happened around about 30 AD. And God makes remembering easier for his people, something much bigger than an alert on our phone, much better than a banner across the bottom of our screens. He engages our taste buds. He gives us, and this is our third idea, a taste to remember. For Israel, it was a lamb roast, half their luck. The annual Passover meal. Let me read from 1224. 
Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the, Egypt, of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And then the people bowed down and worshipped. The annual meal was a simple kind of a memory aid for them. Right? You eat the feast and you remember how God saved you. Your kids are going to ask what's going on. You've got an opportunity right there at the dinner table to explain. So how come we don't eat the Passover meal ourselves? Well, the reason is that Jesus fulfilled it, completed it, finished that whole idea. The lamb we recall is not the four-legged bleating kind, but of course, the Lord Jesus himself. As you recall, the Passover was actually celebrated the night before Jesus' death. Remember that? We now call it the Last Supper, where Jesus reshaped that old meal around his own body and blood. The blood that he would shed on the cross the next day. The blood of that Passover blood, really, that, they, that the, do, the blood on the door frames was foreshadowing. The blood that washes away sins 100%. And so following Christ, we now regularly reenact the Last Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. Bread and wine to recall a body sacrificially given and atoning blood shed. That's how history becomes now for us. That's how the old lives on for us today. It's an experience, a taste. God's an excellent teacher when you think about it. He gives us that taste. He uses our stomachs to make history present. We're people who look back. Actually, that we might look forward to heaven. The Lord's Supper is one help in doing that. And the Lord's Supper can, look, it can become pretty familiar to us. It's possible to, you know, just get bored with the same idea. But you know what? There's a trick to that not happening. And that's to realise that church is actually not about learning something new every Sunday. Church is first and foremost about remembering Jesus, isn't it? It's remembering the one thing. Making old news new again to our hearts. And the Lord's Supper, it's for all Christians. Sometimes you may not feel like taking it. You may not feel worthy. I want to say to you, the day that you don't feel worthy is probably the day you should take it, isn't it? Isn't that the day where you need reminding that the Lord Jesus has paid for your sins 100%. We don't make ourselves worthy to come to Jesus anyway, do we? We approach him by faith, knowing that he's the one who cleansed us. So if your faith is in Jesus, in a moment I encourage you, take the cup. When it comes round, if you need gluten-free, wave at the people handing it out. Eat thankfully. Eat joyfully. As you fellowship with Christ and with others, eat to Remember. Well, we Christians, we have in mind yesterday's news because the reality is it is today's news. It is. 
If newsrooms ran the real news stories, then the death of Jesus would headline every day. Six, seven o'clock at night, we'd be able to flick every single channel and there it would be, death of Jesus, followed by resurrection. There should be banner alerts going across our phones every hour saying, sins paid for, trust Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. We look back that we might look forward to seeing our Saviour face to face, to having him wipe away our tears. We might look forward to the banquet, the feast, the supper in heaven. Would you pray with me? Our dear gracious God, we can ourselves as helpless, in need, in slavery, crying out to you, and yet you have heard us before we asked. You have sent the Lord Jesus, and he, through his atoning blood, has paid the penalty for our sins and has freed us for that perfect service in his kingdom. Father God, we say thank you. Help us to be people who don't just see the now, but constantly see Jesus died, raised, seated at your hand on high, hearing our prayers, pleading his blood for us. And all we can do is bow before you and say thank you. Amen.